Well, good morning. I invite you to grab your Bibles and just open generally to 1 Corinthians. We're going to look at several passages in 1 Corinthians this morning. been it's been uh, quite a week in our country i think uh you know <laughs> I, I think all of us expected that it was going to be an interesting election um I, i'm not sure if any of us expected that we'd hear the results on tuesday night and certainly we didn't uh and it's been a long week it's been a week full of uh, you know i guess anxiety and uh, and patience uh fear and hope uh, it's just been a long week. And, uh, you know, I, as I was preparing for Sunday today, uh, this week, opening up our, our text and looking at what was next for us in 1 Corinthians, we were supposed to be starting off in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 this morning, which is a passage that deals with sexual immorality in the church. And that's a very important passage uh, that I look forward to getting to, but I felt like that might be a little tone deaf this week. Um, so in light of all that we've you know, been through as a country, I, I just think it's important to acknowledge it as a church, especially because of the, uh, the divisiveness around us. And so much of what we've been talking about in 1 Corinthians has to, has to do with divisiveness, how we as God's people relate to one another and ultimately then reflect a unity of Christ to the world. So I knew coming into this Sunday, you know, I, I don't know how everybody in this church votes. I'm sure that there's a diversity there. I knew that there'd be a certain percentage of us who would be, uh, if we knew today, it looks like we know now, there'd be a certain percentage of us who were, who were joyful. Uh, there'd be a certain percentage of us who were discouraged. Um, certainly, we all know this, regardless of how we all voted or how anyone else voted, it's pretty clear that the country really is split. You know, very nearly 50-50 split across vastly different ideals and platforms. So I thought, you know, this morning with that, uh, with the theme of, of unity, with the, the, the uh, admonishment of Paul to avoid factions within the church, it would be a, a good thing to do this morning to just revisit and reapply some of the things that we've already talked about so far in the first six chapters of the of the letter and i realize that in doing that th there's redundancy uh, i realize that i am at risk of maybe sounding like a broken record in how i'm preaching but i think that's okay i think we need redundancy and repetition and reminder regularly so again be ready to just move a little bit around i'm not going to do any uh, s serious exegesis this morning uh, this might be less of a of a typical sermon and more of just a, I hope, just an encouragement, a pastoral word for the church. Um, but here's what I want us to know. However we all voted this week, or however we're feeling this weekend, we are now gathered together as the church this morning. And we will continue to live together as the church moving forward. Um, what do we need to hold on to then? If that's, if that's true, and of course that's true, what do we need to hold on to in order to be a picture of unity and confidence in a disunited and fearful world. 
I think what we've seen in 1 Corinthians so far gives us at least four principles that I want to cover this morning. And Adam, in his prayer, led us right into the first one. So thank you, Adam, for that. But here's the first, the first thing. Our hope is in the risen Christ and his kingdom. Our hope is in the risen Christ and his kingdom. Now, in saying that, I want to I acknowledge something up front. That statement, or that kind of statement, I've seen used many, many times already this week, usually to placate members of the, the losing party. That makes sense, right? Like, like uh, when, when, when we vote in an election and whoever it is that we voted for didn't win, there's, there's often this cry of like, it's okay, God's in control. Right? Our hope's not in the system. Our hope is in God. And of course, that's true, but it is not meant to placate members of a losing party. That's not how I tend to that this morning. It's certainly not what I think Paul wants to point us to in 1 Corinthians. I think if Paul were speaking directly to us in this moment, he would say it like this. No, this, this hope that we have in the risen Christ and in his kingdom is meant to remind us that we never should have put our hope in the systems of man in the first place. Our hope, regardless of what's going on around us, regardless if our political faction is won or lost, our hope, church, is always in the risen Christ and in his kingdom. It is not some trivial platitude. It's foundational as a conviction for the church. Look at verse 7 of chapter 1 in 1 Corinthians. This is that opening, uh, that opening section of the letter where, where Paul is reminding us who we are in Christ. The, the end of verse 7, actually. He says, As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Church, our hope is in the certain return of the resurrected Lord Jesus. Our security is ultimately in our right standing before a holy God because we've been covered by the righteousness of His Son. Our assurance is that no matter what happens in the world, whether geopolitically or locally, whether economically in regards to, to religious liberty or with regard to, to racial harmony or, or any other thing, our great hope and our assurance is that we have an all-powerful God who will sustain his people until the very end. These are unshakable realities. And they are the reasons why Paul does specifically say in chapter 2, verse 4, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. 
that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Do you know this? As Christians, we always get to enjoy political continuity. We always get to enjoy political continuity. Our king is always on the throne. He is never up for re-election. There's no political coup that can ever threaten his power. And in fact, he's the one who establishes every earthly ruler and government. They are always subject to his will. And because that's true, our participation then as his people in his political agenda remains the same no matter what earthly powers are temporarily in control. Now, as I make that statement, our participation in his political agenda remains the same, no matter who's in control. I wonder, does my choice of language cause you to pause there? Does God have a political agenda? The answer biblically is actually yes. However, not in the way that, that we normally think of human political agendas. He's not you know, advocating some partisan platform and his agenda is not limited to uh, the institution of or the adherence to any human laws. By political, I simply mean this. Political means relating to the affairs of people, relating to the affairs of society, and God is absolutely concerned with that. He's absolutely concerned with the affairs of people and society, and as a result, he calls us as citizens of his kingdom his heavenly kingdom, to be agents in this world of his righteousness, his righteous law, his desire for human flourishing. You say, well, how does, how does, he, how does he call us to that? Well, let me just give you two very familiar passages. Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, this is the first and the greatest commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, on these two commandments depend all of the law, all of the prophets. And in the prophets, we read things like this in Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So I would say this to us this morning, brothers and sisters, we can and we must do these things regardless of who sits in the White House. Sometimes we may have opportunity to demonstrate neighbor love, to seek human flourishing through participation in the political process, through the enactment of just laws, or through the courts upholding those laws, sometimes. But here's what we can always do. We can always seek these things by the way we live our lives each and every day. Each and every day. In caring for others, in meeting needs, in sacrificially giving of ourselves to minister to our neighbors, in showing love to all in praying for and honoring those who are in positions of authority every day. 
And there may be times when we can love our neighbors and relatives safely. And there may be times when loving our neighbors comes at great risk of marginalization or even persecution. But it doesn't matter. We can always live this way if we firmly believe that God is in control and that our hope is in the risen Christ and in His everlasting kingdom. So it is not a platitude to say our hope is in Christ, the risen Christ and His kingdom. It is foundational. It's foundational as a conviction, as God's people. And and I want to say this too, that also means we can't join in then with the divisive rhetoric of the surrounding culture. If we really believe that our hope is in Christ, we can't join in with the divisive rhetoric. If we do that, we become scoffers. And listen to this. This is so important. Proverbs 29.8 tells us this. Scoffers set a city aflame. In other words, that never accomplishes human flourishing. And it certainly doesn't proclaim our hope in Christ. So regardless of how you're feeling about the election this morning, don't place too much stock in the outcome of it. Don't place too much stock in the outcome. Our hope is in the risen Christ and his kingdom, and our calling has not changed. It will not change. Live like you are citizens of a greater and sure kingdom, because you are. Because you are. So that's foundational. But I think it's important for us to also talk about some practical applications then of that kind of trust, because elections do have consequences, right? Elections do have consequences. There are reasons, there are legitimate reasons, why people can be either elated or deeply discouraged and afraid. And again, we see both right now. We see both right now. So here's the thing. If our society is clearly at a, at a breaking point in that divisiveness over whether we see hope or fear, how do we help as Christians, how do we help as a church to bring healing? And I'm thinking of that first and foremost within the church. How do we help bring healing? And, and how does that then reflect outwardly from us to the world? And here's what I want to submit. I want to submit to you that the gospel should make us the best people to look to for fostering healing and understanding. You say, how? Because the gospel both frees and compels us to hear the experienced losses of our brothers and sisters when political moves have consequences. To hear them. And to be reminded, secondly, this is the second of the four things, that the gospel speaks to our unfulfilled longings. The gospel speaks to our unfulfilled longings. Before I point us to where I see this in 1 Corinthians, let me, let me, let me set it up with, by saying this. I know we've been hearing a lot about culture wars in American politics uh, and we've been hearing that for a long time now, right? Like maybe 40 or 50 years we've been talking about culture wars. And it, and it used to be, I think, that that term primarily referred to a shift in values, 
particularly referring to moral or ethical value differences between those who would call themselves conservatives and those who would call themselves progressives. And so there's this sort of like tug and, and pull about what we value ethically and morally. Lately, though, I think the culture wars have taken on a deeper meaning, this idea of culture war, a deeper meaning that's created an even deeper divide. And here's, here's what I mean by that. People don't just disagree on issues because they have different political ideologies. I think they disagree in, in the most impassioned and polarized ways they disagree because they see those differing ideologies as somehow a repudiation of them as a person, a repudiation of their human dignity, maybe even a repudiation of their, of their right to exist. And, and all of that is, is sort of part of this, this phenomenon that's often referred to as identity politics. And this, this term identity politics is kind of a, a vague phrase, but it, it generally just refers to the discussion of and politicking around issues related to our identity, I guess. Uh, things like race, religion, gender, sexuality, cultural heritage, etc. We could go on about that. But, but here's the thing. Rather than seeing those differences as things that may describe us, we can see them as things that actually define us. That's a significant thing to recognize. Why is it that that's the case? Well, I think it's because we all want to find significance and purpose. We all desire to find meaning and value in life. We, we all want to matter, right? And so when we have an identity marker that seems to provide for us that significance, in other words, it, it seems to define us, we hold on to it as if our happiness depends on it, as our, our freedom depends on it, our worth, our dignity is at stake. And if the security of that identity is threatened in any way, we will fight as if our very lives depend on it. That, I think, is why we're seeing what we're seeing around us. Why it's so intense, why it's so divided, and why it's so vitriolic. So here's, here's the thing. I'm not here to argue one way or the other about the merits of identity politics. I, I just want to make this point. It exists, and it's it's pretty deeply entwined into our political climate. It's pretty deeply entwined into our cultural divisiveness. Some of those identity markers are legitimate descriptors, descriptions of who we are. Some of them are not. But all of them, all of them become dangerous idols when we see them as defining who we are. Here's what we need to see biblically. None of them are meant to be primary. None of them should define us. Because as Christians, the gospel gives us a new and true identity. Paul recognized that this same kind of identity politics was at work in the Corinthian church, and he instructs God's people to see through it. Look, look at the text. Chapter 1. Verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. 
Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. See, what was happening in in the Corinthian society, I know we've touched on this, but I want to revisit it. What was happening there was that they they were finding their significance in identifying with these these markers, these cultural markers. They were looking for their significance in in some measure of status that was deeply related to whatever faction they belong to, whatever group they belong to, whatever, whatever power circle they belong to, right? And Paul is, is saying that that is not what defines us. In fact, when we look to the, the, the systems of the world or the descriptors of the world for our meaning, for our significance, we, we, we find that, that we just run after a foolishness because that's not what God looks at. That's not what God looks at. In fact, Paul says to them, God looks at the weakness. In other words, he's not giving value and worth to you based on any status that you might have had. Church, you could look around and in large measure see that most of you didn't have any status at all. But God gives us status and worth and significance and purpose in this basic, important statement because of him you are in christ you are in christ so that again this boasting that that we might do would would have nothing to do with boasting in any kind of descriptor on a human level but entirely in the grace and the goodness of god our primary identity through the gospel is now in christ and note Christ doesn't do away with our descriptors, but he does remove them from being our primary definers. Paul says to the Galatians in chapter 3, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So it's that same idea. You are in Christ. Then he says this, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. Now, was Paul saying there that there's no such thing as male, female, Jew, Greek, slave, or free anymore? No, he's not saying that the descriptors go away. He's saying that they don't define us. They don't separate us. What defines us is Christ, our oneness in Christ. We have put on Christ. So I would hope this, that when, when other people in the church, or, or outside of it, but specifically in the church, when other people express hurt or loss over a, a political loss, 
And by the way, whether you are a Democrat or a Republican, you've been in that boat over the past four days or four years, right? You've, you've experienced a, a loss. I would hope that if there's hurt there, we would be able to see that their pain may not just be rooted in their disappointment over some change of leadership or some change of policy, but that that loss may be being experienced somehow as a repudiation of their dignity or their right to exist. And how do we help bring healing? If we listen to those fears expressed by others then with understanding of what is it that, that they're really longing for? Significance. Worth, value, human dignity. We have compassion on that towards them. And that then allows us to point them to a better reality. The gospel tells us that our belonging and our identity is not secured or lost depending on who did or didn't get elected. Our belonging and our identity is always secure in Christ because God has sovereignly elected us. And that's not just lip service. It shouldn't just be lip service in the church. I, I think we would all acknowledge that. But it can't be lip service. Thirdly, the church is the community where these realities are experienced and displayed. Our hope is in Christ and his kingdom. The gospel speaks to our deepest longings. The church then is the community where those realities are experienced and displayed. Chapter 1, verse 10. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. You know, I know we've talked about this so much already. The church is a community where factions and partisanship cannot be tolerated. The church is a community based on our fellowship and our unity in Jesus. And because Jesus is the only true reconciler, we're the only place in the world where people can look to see what true unity is supposed to look like and where it can only be found in Jesus Christ, the one who's reconciled us to God and reconciled us to one another. Remember 2 Corinthians 5, very familiar passage. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. But, but I think what Paul wants us to understand is even though this is the reality that we, that we live in and exist in, it's, it's also not automatic. It's not automatically displayed in the church. It's not automatically experienced in the church. 
we have to choose to live in that reality. Which is why he says there in verse 10 again, I appeal to you, brothers, to do this. God has made this possible. God has accomplished this in us. But I appeal to you to live in that. Because it's not always automatic. But it's possible. It's possible. And, and we shouldn't be cynical about that. You know, earlier this week, I heard a, a prominent church leader say this, or something like this. I'm paraphrasing. But it was basically, our country is severely divided. What they need to see right now is a church that is united. And you read that and you think, amen, right? But then I, 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 I heard another prominent church leader respond to that by saying this, too late. Too late. The country is divided in large measure because the church has greatly contributed to that division. Now, I understand the sentiment behind that response, but I, I have to strongly disagree. Not disagree with the fact that that's true or has been true. Disagree with the fact that it's too late. It's never too late to repent. It's never too late to return to true unity in the church because God's grace cannot be outsinned. God can bring healing. God can bring restoration. And he has, right? He has. He's given us his son. He's died on the cross for our sins. He's, he's resurrected and, and drawn us to, to new life and new community in him. He has done all of this. And we can respond to his grace by then choosing to agree about our common bond and our true identity in, in Christ. We we can, build, we can be a church that is filled with people of, of every descriptor when we realize that we're defined by our new status as one body through one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And if we become this kind of church there's nobody, regardless of their descriptors, who will feel excluded. Because our declarations of unity will be backed up by demonstrations of unity, too. Let me give an example of, of this. Um, I think something that will, that will touch home for all of us. We think about unity in the church. We think about you know, an opportunity for us to display that unity in, in, a, in a way in which it just seems to like not be able to get over the hump. Something that this year became a, a big topic of discussion in the church, of course, in society as well, was this, the, the, the whole Black Lives Matter movement. So I, I've been really wrestling with this as just something to, something to convict me and, and to pray about, because Black Lives Matter as a statement is something that all of us, all of us, especially as believers, should be able to say, I absolutely agree to that. Absolutely. All black lives, not, not some and not black only, right? Like all people, 
black people. And, and, when, and black people are specifically being, you know, uh, in the spotlight for some specific abuses or offenses, we should be able to say wholeheartedly, black lives matter. I don't think anybody would disagree with that. What we have apparently been disagreeing about is that, you know, there's some, some group of people outside of the church who, you know, I don't know much about it, but, but if they have like Marxist leanings and have adopted that statement, then that's now become a stumbling block because people will say, well, I can't, I can't affirm that movement, I can't affirm that statement because it's represented by something Marxist, which is anti-God, and therefore in the church, you've got like people who won't say Black Lives Matter because of the affiliation with a potential political ideology that they don't want to be associated with. Now, listen, I, I'm not wading into that argument. <laughs> here's, what I, here's what I want to say. It's a shame that a Marxist organization had to be the first ones to make the statement The church should have been way ahead of that. Black Lives Matter, as a, as a statement and as a movement, ought to be something that was led by the church. People ought to say, that's what the Christians have said. Not because, necessarily, we had figured out you know, all of the, all of the, the political ramifications of, of what happened in every situation where, where, where black people were, were, were killed by police or whatever and, and tried to wait till we figured out all the facts of each individual case. Not, not for any of those reasons. Simply because we should be able to look across our own communities of faith and see our black brothers and sisters who are struggling with and in pain with the reality that they are afraid in our society and that ought to matter to us. To see pain on brothers and sisters' faces, we should have been the first ones to say, black lives matter, right? And, and there's a million other examples like that. It's not lip service. It should never be lip service in the church to say, we, we put our hope in Christ. We believe that the gospel has, has the answers to all of our deepest longings and the church is the community where unity exists. It's not, and it cannot be just lip service. It should be demonstrated in visible ways, tangible ways, so that nobody in our congregations and therefore nobody in our communities can say, eh, they don't really believe that. Fourthly, we have to keep clinging to these truths because they're always at risk of being forgotten. Let me restate the truths. Our hope is in Christ. Our hope is in Christ and his kingdom. The gospel speaks to our deepest longings. Therefore, our identity is in him. Thirdly, the church is the community where these realities are not just experienced, but lived out, constantly proclaimed. It all points back to the centrality of this. Jesus Christ is Lord. His gospel is central. We have to keep clinging to these truths because they are always at risk of being forgotten. We haven't gotten to chapter 15 yet, but flip over to chapter 15. Paul is 
is laid out now at the end of the, at the letter, all of these different issues that have been divisive points of contention in the church. He's been continually pointing them back to Christ, continually pointing back to their unity in Christ, continually calling them to, to repentance and fidelity to the gospel. And he ends the letter here, chapter 15, verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Be steadfast. Keep clinging to these truths. Keep pursuing your primary identity in Christ, your unity and fellowship in him, your love for one another. Keep clinging to these truths because they're always at risk of being forgotten. If they weren't at risk of being forgotten, this letter wouldn't have had to have been written in the first place. And the church for 2,000 years wouldn't have to keep coming back to letters like this to be convicted and reminded and made holy again because we forget. We forget. But the gospel is to be remembered, which is why we live together as the church, and we'll continue to do that. We need the community of faith to gather together around the word of God every week and be shaped by it. We need to come to this communion table often and constantly be reminded that Jesus' body was broken for us, his blood was shed for us, that he did that to reconcile us to God and to one another and to give us the ministry of reconciliation. We have to keep clinging to these truths. Listen, the election is over. Hallelujah. <laughs> the election is over, but this crazy cultural moment is far from over. The, the coming days are going to continue to be filled with division points. Church, Will our hope be in Christ alone? Will we believe that the gospel meets our deepest longings? Will we be a church where these truths are lived out and cling to them no matter what threats may come to steal our hope away? By God's grace, we can. And we need to pray. So would you let me pray for us? Father, I, I want to begin by just acknowledging that we are a weary people. We're a weary people in a, in a weary nation. We've been through a lot. And we will continue, it seems, to go through a lot. But we confess and acknowledge and we rejoice in the fact that you, God, are God. You're the king of the universe. You're the king of our hearts. We're so grateful to know, Lord, that, that you sit on your throne and that your will will always be accomplished. We're so grateful, Lord, to, to have the assurance that Jesus came for us 
He died for us. He rose again. And that he has washed us clean from sin. He's made us a new people. He's covered us in his righteousness, Lord. And he's coming again to set it all right. Lord, we also confess that though we believe those things, we've so often failed to live like we believe it. So Lord, to the extent that any of us has placed our trust in a political process or in any other worldly wisdom, Lord, we confess to you that that's sinful on our part. We confess that our, our hope is in you alone. We ask you to forgive us. We ask you to forgive us as, as the church for being a place where factions can exist, where divisiveness can reign. We ask you to make us a new people. We, for, we ask you to forgive us, Lord, for not being a, a witness in this world that, that's clearly different. We pray, Lord, for renewal and a renewed witness amongst our neighbors. And Lord, as I pray that, I'm, I'm, I'm also very grateful that, that Edgewater as a church has been in great measure, um, I think, shielded from a lot of the divisiveness that we see in the broad church. I am grateful for that, Lord. But Lord, we, we are humble enough to know that there are... <laughs> There are always opportunities for us to fail. So Lord, we, we look to Jesus and we ask you to just remind us regularly where our hope lies. To remind us regularly where our longings are met. To remind us regularly that this community matters. To remind us regularly to be a voice for righteousness and justice in our world and to never forget as we wait for Jesus, who will sustain us to the end. Lord, we pray that our country would, would find healing and that the church would be an agent of that healing for your glory, certainly for our good. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.